This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. It's so good to talk to you guys again. Welcome back to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast, uh, the first podcast of 2023. Can you dig it? I very much can. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse, and thank you for joining me once again. Can you dig it? I can. We're going to say it again because I can't get enough of that shit. And we are going to kick it off again this year with another series that I am very excited to talk about. So if you guys remember or if you guys don't remember, if you guys have been fans, if you have not been fans, last time since I've seen all this other sort of stuff... We did a series, I did a series last January, because January, conveniently, right now at least, has three weekends where I do original posts, original content, original podcasts, and so I figured that deviating from the usual twice a month, it has to be something very, very succinct. I like three-part things. I like trilogies. I like Star Wars. I like Lord of the Rings. I like all that shit. So it would be just peachy, I thought, if we did something again with something that I thought was different, but also kind of the same. And here we are. Here we are again with a different series. So last time, if you guys remember, or if you guys look back on don'treadthisblog.com or go back all the way to the 50s of my podcast, so number 50, like somewhere, I think it's actually 53, that it kind of goes through all this other sort of stuff. But it would be um, you know, something where we can, we can see everything uh, everything works. Anyway, so last January, I did a series called the Critical Gender Series about gender, gender roles, kind of where we are. I did a conversation around truth that I thought was very powerful and very, very integral to kind of the cultural conversation going on right now. And a lot of things centered around all of those things, a very, very hot topic in today's world. And, to, and this series is going to be no exception. It's going to be very different, but it's also going to be very similar in that I see some things going on inside of culture. This one is going to be broader than gender. It's not going to be as specific or tied into any one particular topic, but it's still going to be very important, I think, very powerful discussion. And it is called the Culture Death Series. So ego death, culture death, they go hand in hand, in my opinion. I think that American culture right now is experiencing significant upheaval, significant rot, significant all this other sort of thing that is going on, and I do not like the looks of it, and I don't think a lot of people do. No matter how much they say, how woke they are, how not woke they are, how whatever they say about all this kind of stuff, I don't think a lot of people are comfortable with it, and I think a lot of things are causing it. It's a very, very multifaceted problem, which I think is very, very interesting, very, very cool to be able to dig into, dig into all of it. And I think there are specific things that are causing this, and there are specific things that are kind of more more important than other things that are kind of getting into all this sort of stuff. And we will be getting into, like I said, all of it. But first, we are going to be digging into a very, very hot-button topic, something that I have been kind of 
I don't want to say like dancing around, but I've been talking about some other variation of things around. I don't think I honestly had a name for it for a long time about a lot of this other sort of stuff, but now I do. And now I really, really want to dig into it. And it was brought up by one of my favorite people ever who, you, who we will talk about in a second. But to get into it, this is going to be a really, really interesting dialogue. I think a very interesting social movement that is happening inside of our country that is causing, again, the death of American culture as we know it, and the emergence of something that is very, very different from the old style, the traditional style, our values-based style of doing things. And to do that, we are going to be digging into this first concept, which I feel very, very strongly about. I, I have researched this. I've looked into this for a long time. I've read books. I've done a lot of other things. And I think we finally have a name inside of it. So without that, without further ado, let's kick off 2023 and the Culture Death series with what I believe is going to be a bang. So first of all, hello and welcome to 2023, everybody. At the beginning of 2022, I decided to dive into one of the most hot-button topics of the age, gender and the role it plays in our society. To start off 2023, like I said, I'm going to be taking a different route with my annual series, culture and the role that its decay is playing on the citizens that comprise it. While not all of the shifts in culture are a bad thing, there is enough motion and bad actors causing it to where there is a good amount of cause for concern. The goal of these posts and these podcasts will be twofold. First, to discuss the trends going on that are causing these shifts, and two, to see how we can handle them to hopefully prevent the death of the culture that allowed us to get to this point in the first place. And that said, let's begin. In 2022, I made an initiative to start absorbing more knowledge in a passive format. Reading, my primary way that I get ideas, is a very active pursuit. You have to willingly block out time, turn your brain on, and dial in physically to physically storing knowledge inside of your head. That time we can do that, however much we can try, is very limited. The people that do the same things I do, as well as the people that don't, know this. And this is, in large part, why the art of podcasting has become perhaps the defining media format of the current age. I have, on average, about 20 podcasts in rotation that I listen to at least a monthly basis. They all do different things, touch different subject material, and have different points of view than the last person. And the gold standard, obviously, is Joe Rogan, who took a hint from Adam Carolla and turned it into the greatest new wave media empire the world has ever seen. There is no person with more pull on planet Earth than Joe Rogan. He is the flat standard for those who want to make it in the world. Like it was once said about New York, if you make it there, you can make it anywhere. There is a large debate on who the second best podcaster in the world is after Rogan, however. It usually comes down to some combination of personal preference and your own individual goals as to who that person is. However, there are certain traits that I believe all great podcasters have. They must be willing to entertain all different types of guests. They must be contribute something to the conversation while not overstepping their boundaries on the guest. And most importantly, they must be able to listen effectively to facilitate an effective dialogue and discussion. And these are all things that Rogan has perfected and all those who took inspiration from him have taken afterwards so that they can hope to do the same. That said, my pick for the second best podcaster in the world would be one of Rogan's good friends and mentees, Lex Friedman. Lex Friedman, artificial intelligence and robotics scientist with a large interest in human nature and the state of the world, was interviewed by Rogan once and several times, and like he's done with several other famous podcasters now, inspired him to start his podcast, the Lex Friedman Podcast. While Friedman primarily plays in the fields of his own individual expertise, namely science and the things surrounding it, he has recently expanded to include a plethora of incredible guests. He's one of the only people who have a direct line to people like Elon Musk and Jordan Peterson and can hang with both intellectually so that the Austin can understand them. One of the more interesting things that Friedman has done recently is get into an interesting style of debate format for his podcast episodes. 
He takes one person who stands definitively on one side of the issue, allows them to say their side, and then comes back right after with the person on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. Even though these people don't, quote, talk to one another per se, it's incredibly effective to let that person speak uninterrupted about something that they are either really passionate and or really smart in. With someone as open and unbiased as Friedman running the discussion, it provides a rare opportunity to see some of the most pressing issues of our time. The first and most interesting one of Friedman's debates was one he had about Marxism. Marxism and the framing, of, the framing of both economics and societal struggle in terms of class and power has begun to see a resurgence in the world as of recent times. Several books have been written about in the past year about it or so, a lot of which I've either read and or researched. They definitely have merit, but they are also very definitely bland, one-sided, and stale. The art of conversation through podcasting is a good way to sense the sentiment about one where, where one truly stands in the issue and why they take it, which is what makes the, what Friedman is doing so important to that conversation in totality. On the pro-Marxism side, Friedman invited a man named Richard Wolff onto the show to explain it and come to its defense. Wolff, the most famous Marxism pod professor in the United States, sat with Friedman for three hours and passionately defended the virtues of Marxism and how, due to our culture's rapid descent into material and monetary hedonism, some of its principles could be applied to put stability back into our culture to help save it. He made a lot of intriguing and valid points, all of which Friedman acknowledged. However, his argument was, by definition, very limited. Those limitations were exposed by Wolff's counterpart on the anti-Marxism side, Douglas Murray. Murray, one of my favorite people on the planet and one of the most, avid, the most avid defender of Western culture I've ever seen or heard, was invited on by Friedman to both defend Wolf, defend against Wolf, and introduce concepts that he expanded on in his latest book, The War on the West. And if you read my post on the top, five best books I read in 2020, this is the top dog of all of them. For the reasons I'm about to state, it was well-deserving of that distinction. Murray's book was not about Marxism, at least in the traditional sense that Wolf talked about. When Wolf talked about Marxism, he talked about it in strictly economic terms. It was a system that proposed a redistribution of resources and wealth that would, in his view, give more people the opportunity to climb the ladder and become more powerful economically. It's an argument that has been made over and over again, a drum that modern Marxists beat over and over as the calling card as to why their system works better than others. But the way that Murray discussed Marxism was different. Murray did not describe an economic system, although economics is certainly a part of what he diagnosed as to what is going on with Western culture. The Marxism he discussed was different, something that I had never heard of before. It went far beyond some shallow and vapid political talking point that had been beaten over the heads on mainstream news for the past years. This was something new, at least to me. Cultural Marxism Murray, instead of describing a system of removing value and transferring onto other people based on class or power, described a process in which everything about Western culture was being upended. It was the same path that economic Marxism took, dismantling everything about markets and making them completely framed around something different, but with something much more serious than the economy, our culture. I was stunned when Murray put a name to the thing that he and so many others had talked about. So immediately after his conversation with Friedman, I'm good with it. I googled it. Excuse me. I was even more stunned when I saw the results of my search. Nearly everything that came up with when I searched labeled cultural Marxism as a, quote, conspiracy theory. To them, it was no different from a half-baked idea, idea that Alex Jones and Steve Bannon discussed at a truck stop McDonald's in rural Pennsylvania on a way home from an 8chan convention. I didn't see that at all. Everything Murray and Friedman talked about was absolutely real. It had to have been. I'd seen it way too many times in real life, read too many examples, written too many blogs and podcasts about the subject to realize that this theory was the furthest thing from an actual conspiracy. Eventually, I did stumble upon the theory being adopted in mainstream culture, 
even though it was skated around a good bit after time it came up, or every time it came up, excuse me. Murray has a habit of stepping on landmines, as it were. However, this landmine was not one for something blowing the leg off of Murray's argument. There was something very real about what Murray was talking about, which is what makes it so appealing and interesting to me and so many others. So then, what exactly is cultural Marxism? Cultural Marxism, if you look on Wikipedia, is supposed far-right and anti-Semitic theory that is supported curiously by people like Andrew Breitbart, David Horowitz, and Ben Shapiro, three very prominent Jewish men. It's supposed to be something that is immediately shut down, not entertained at all, thrown into the ether to die, along with the Flat Earth Movement and Pizzagate. It's not real, you see. Don't look at it. You would turn to stone or blow up like the poor folks that looked into the Ark of the Covenant. Cultural Marxism, if you read the work of Murray and others that support it, is a growing movement in Western culture to overturn the values that formed Western culture. In Murray's own accurate words, it is Western anti-Westernism. It is saying things like the principles that formed our founding documents, our religiosity, and even to the date our country was founded, are all inherently sinful and wrong. It is saying that there is something better, if only it were to be completely overturned by a new system that they both conveniently and supposedly would write. So who are the people that promote this? They are wide-ranging, spanning from the elites that condescend to the rest of society and are expert in ruling classes to the mob that enforce them to the people that get brainwashed by the theory in places like corporate America and our university systems. And the gist is rather simple. Everything you were taught about the West and how good it has been for both itself and the world is wrong. It and you are condemned by the actions of your past, even if you didn't have anything to do with it. All reference points to its existence must be destroyed. Any attempt to join the other side will result in you being labeled a conspiracy theorist, no different than someone who denies the Holocaust and the Bush family organized 9-11. This is done by design. The stifling of any conversation surrounding a displacement of our value system that we hold in America is the fastest way to the death of America itself. Our culture is something we should be proud of. That does not mean we should just ignore our sins, but it also does not mean that we should focus just on them either. To dissect this first and most pressing aspect of our culture death, we first need to analyze what cultural Marxism is. Next, we will go into why we should all be terrified of what cultural Marxism will do should it sustain its momentum. Lastly, and most importantly, we will look into what we can do to help reverse the tide, prevent cultural Marxism, and how we can just make a, make a just future for all Americans. So grab Alex Jones and a bucket of popcorn and let's get started on our fast path to being labeled an anti-Semite. Part 1. Western Anti-Westernism In the War on the West, Douglas Murray came to two primary conclusions. The West was under attack, and that the West was under attack from a new force. The West and its ideas and virtues were under attack from people who, like always, have wanted to see them destroyed and toppled. They view them as insufficient to advance a different and utopianist version of what they choose to exist, one that is most likely not what they claim it to be. Anti-Westernism is nothing new. The pride and resentment that reeks from it has been long since sniffed out. What was new, however, was the new force in which anti-Westernism was coming from. The West itself. Never before had self-loathing that defines much of our modern culture had been more apparent than the destruction of that same culture. Inspired by decades of anti-Western practices being unknowingly disseminated into public institutions, there has been a brewing hatred of all things Western that has been simmering on the radar unbeknownst to most for a very long time. It only took a couple of distinct events for the pot to boil over, for the roiling tide to start its slide up the shores of the beaches of our culture. That moment has come, and the effects are on full display all around us. 
The way that Murray outlines it is by defining the other side of the coin that Richard Wolff does not discuss, or did not discuss, the cultural aspect of what Marxism can do to a society. In Wolff's correct analysis, Marxism is an economic system that attempts to remove inequality by redistributing wealth to those its leaders deem out of the loop of influence and power. They are biased in nature, having almost no objective metrics to claim the oppressed from the oppressor. Rather, they simply go by who they feel is being left out of the equation. The one good thing, if you can even say so, about economic Marxism is that it can clearly define who they are. Those without. These people, the common folks, have been gypped, according to the Marxists. The affluent, those who have, must pay them for their privilege. This is, on its face, mostly absurd. Some of the people with influence, money, and power could have gotten those things from ill-gotten and unethical gains and means. And that is certainly true. There's a lot of that going on in our society right now, and there will be with every society that contains freedom for the people to do so. The cost of freedom is that people can get hurt by people who abuse it. The cost of control, I would argue, is much greater. Rather than protect them from the dangers of freedom, it ensures that everyone can experience the peace of slavery by allowing them no choices in how they go about governing their lives. But to say that all people do this is a very unfair and unwise assertion. There are a lot of good people who got wealthy by doing it the right way through collaboration, hard work, and providing value to those who sought it. To castigate anyone above another person in society by the nature of their social class, to label them the other, is an incredibly dangerous thing to do because it opens up doors to resentment by those who were removed from that specific class. In order to make Marxism work, everything that had control and power has to be destroyed by necessity. If an entire system is predicated on the claim that there is an oppressor stifling some oppressed people, that oppressor must be immediately shut down and removed. It must all be shattered and torn to the ground so that something else, something theoretically better, can stand in its place as something that can stand as the new beacon for freedom and liberation. But Marxism, no matter where it's been tried, has never worked for exactly this reason. You should not attempt to tear something down that you don't understand. E.K. Chesterton taught us that. The better approach, the more sane and ethical one, is to first see if the fence has any utility first. That being Chesterton's fence. If you don't look at, know it, look it up. If it doesn't, you have an obligation to remove it. If it does, you should probably try to improve it before blowing it to pieces. Marxism has never worked in economics because no matter what the Marxists have to say, power always centralizes somewhere. Joseph Stalin perfected this in the Soviet Union where he improved on his idol Vladimir Lenin's initial vision. Socialism, the act of treating everyone the same and giving them the same resources, wasn't enough for him. He had to centralize all power to himself in the form of communism to give the illusion that he was actually doing something for them. The results were great for him and disastrous for everyone else. This is the end result of Marxism. It's an endless cycle of destruction, one that cannot be stopped once that version of Pandora's box has been unjarred. Murray's claim, and what I believe to be a correct one, is that cultural Marxism, the outgrowth of economic Marxism, is much worse for one defined reason. Cultural Marxism is intangible, not tangible. Everything gets worse when you aren't able to define accurately what something is. If you were to get injured playing a game of basketball and the doctor couldn't tell you what was wrong with you, that untreated injury would get worse. If your debt and spending habits keep spiraling out of control and you don't seek help from a financial advisor, you'll most likely end up getting your financial situation even more fucked than it already is. If you keep snorting crystal meth out of a hooker's ass and you don't seek clinical help, you'll find yourself quite literally in the shit once again sooner rather than later. The same is especially true with something as complex and destructive as a social movement. 
if you aren't participating in something that is harming people, but are not able to, if you are participating in something that's harming people, rather, but are not able to articulate to yourself why you keep participating in it and why you should stop, you will keep leaving endless destruction in your wake. You will not be able to tell the group of people that you're with, that something you're going on and what you're doing is rational. In short, you descend further and further into confusion before you come, become completely and totally consumed by ideology. But what is that ideology exactly? People are not widgets nor vessels in an economy. They are human beings who believe things and have feelings about what goes on in this world. So therefore, cultural Marxism destroys what humans, not an economy, care about. What makes them human. And what has made us human, a culture, is what has gotten us there time and time again. Our traditions and our values. Therefore, the point of cultural Marxism is to remove all the reference points to those traditions and values and attempt to subvert them with a new idea of how those things should work. It feels that these traditions and values are inherently evil and wrong, that it would be better if they didn't exist and bring value to people who depend on them. A removal of those reference points puts people on the short path to destruction, one that is defined by the demolishing path that once led them to a place that they deem so promising to try to reach. You can get away with it destroying an economy. It's happened at least twice in the last three years, and will probably happen again in a worse fashion than both this year. But economies can be rebuilt. Entrepreneurship will still flourish. Businesses will innovate and recover as they always have before. They will recover, and the wealth and prosperity they brought into the world will be reborn in a new form. Even with all the destruction that the COVID crash and the crypto and inflation bubbles that have burst, we're still here. We're bent but not broken. There are new ideas being born, new things being suggested, new goals and dreams being acted upon. What you can't get away with, on the contrary, is making people go insane and hate one another due to a complete dissolution and disrespect of the culture that you both live in. When you do these things, when you destroy all reference points of what has been, and when you exchange all of those things for what is conveniently new for the person deciding them, you create an incredible amount of chaos that becomes untethered from what the goal actually is. No one knows what is right, just, or true anymore. Everything becomes subjective, and as a result, people begin to tribalize. Cultural Marxism, in essence, is a destruction of past wisdom by people who are power-hungry enough to attempt to exchange it for modern wisdom, quote, modern wisdom, that is, they, that they suggest, that are privileged enough to create. That, quote, wisdom, for the most part, is not wisdom at all. It's a wish list, something they wish could be done in our culture that would completely erase all the progress by the things that got us there in the first place, but with no reference points and no guidance. All that you have to guide you is whatever the culture is currently saying, and perhaps most ironically at all, the ones dictating culture are the ones that say that cultural Marxism is the good thing, those the power and privilege over the rest of us. In my post on luxury and luxury beliefs, I went over how the great Rob Henderson has come up with the idea that, contrary to the times of the past, ideas are the new luxury item, not anything materialistic or bland. It is these new-aged ideas, the ones that spit in the face of the traditions and values that formed our culture, that now hold the greatest currency of all in our current cultural moment. It is the classic ideal of rules for me, but, but not for thee, or rules for thee, but not for me, excuse me. The people that espouse things that make them appear more moral and virtuous than the rest of us are, in fact, none of these things. Instead, what they're trying to do is seek ideological monopoly over how they wish for society to look going into the future. 
The destruction of how the culture before us formerly worked, the Western values that shaped everything from enshrining our basic human rights to creating and establishing a democratic system of governance, is the key to the success of cultural Marxism. It is the genie being fully unbottled, with all the wishes of the opener to be left at the whims of what the completely uncontrollable force can do. But there is something that happens to a society when it attempts to bridge a fruitless gap between what has worked, what has come before, and completely decimate it in favor of something totally new. When you introduce this much change this quickly, you cause many people to writhe with understandable pain towards what they correctly believe is a complete untethering of their understanding of the world as they know it. When people feel that they are being cut off from what has made them and their culture great, they became convinced that the very force participating in this is out to get them, and in many ways they're correct about this. Therefore, it cuts off any essence of what has worked by immediately forsaking it. It cuts off everything, any essence of what is rational, by saying that what has worked before is inherently irrational. It cuts off any essence of what was, is just by saying that everything that once em was embodied was not justice at all. What takes its place is something incredibly sinister. What takes its place is a new world order, completely created by those who despised everything about the old one, especially the things that worked. What makes cultural Marxism dangerous, as we'll see, is not the getting rid of the bad ideas for the good ideas, because that should always be a welcome change. Rather, it is getting rid of ideas they don't like for the ideas they do like, be them righteous and good or not. Everything about culture, just like economic Marxism, is about power and control. And as long as it is they that are the ones controlling it, they will continue to run roughshod over all those who oppose them. But this also creates something else. A massive rift of cultural resentment towards this new world order and age that has been enshrined. It shifts the power balance of society completely into what is in favor of everything the people who have seized power have to say. And because of this, it places everyone else, the newest class of those dispossessed, at their mercy. And as you will see, this newfound power structure is where the true danger of cultural Marxism lies. Part 2. Order and Chaos The first outgrowth of cultural Marxism we saw in our society at large took place all throughout the summer of 2020. Kicked off by the death of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin on Memorial Day of that year, the complete destruction that was caused from it, including the death and billions in damages, raged across the country at a frightening pace. And, even more strange, it was done at the whims of a strange altar. Progress. It was, quote, progress, you see, to throw bricks through a window of a local baker. It was, quote, progress that encouraged companies to begin actively discriminating against other genders and races by instituting falsely labeled, quote, equity policies to go along with diversity and inclusion. It was, quote, progress that encouraged our elected officials to not condemn the violence that swirled around our country, but to stand in solidarity with those upending everything about our way of life. What we witnessed during that summer was a grand awakening one that had not been seen in a very, very long time. Murray, who by trade is a journalist, saw this firsthand in what became the newly dubbed ground zero of the chaos, Portland, Oregon. Murray went undercover and joined a roaming mob of Antifa protesters and rioters, a domestic terrorist group that was empowered by the state of Oregon to enact vigilante justice based on the premise of cultural Marxism. Antifa, a group that supposedly encourages anti-fascism, was greatly empowered by true fascism, the merger of state and corporate power, to do on the streets what could have not been done in the boardroom and halls of Congress. Mainly, to use brute force and intimidation 
to bend the will of the citizens to the desire of our newly empowered elite. Murray tells a frightening story of anarchy, where the Antifa mob roamed the streets of Portland, looking for people on the wrong side of history to harm. They went through neighborhoods looking for political candidates, non-racist and anyone who non-anti-racist, and anyone who dared take a contrarian view on the mainstream opinion of race relations in America. Anyone who did not agree with their opinions, like journalist Andy No, was brutally assaulted with impunity. No one interfered. No one did anything. The city of Portland continued to burn, the lawlessness of the streets being terrifyingly captured for all to see, no single person behind any camera or social media reel doing anything to help. Portland was destroyed as a result. The city was on fire for over 100 days. It was the constant staple of right-wing talking points on cable news for both the right and the wrong reasons. Hundreds of millions in wealth was lost. Too many people were injured or killed. Too many cowards did nothing to step in and help. When Murray left, he had a perfect description for it. A city adorned with and defined by newly empty plinths. You may be asking, like I did, what is a plinth exactly? A plinth, as it turns out, is the base for statues to be held up. It is the foundation for something to rest upon, in this case being something that a local populace deemed important enough for, to project for all to see. Portland was ground zero for this activity as well. There was no vote, no city council meeting, no nothing. Just angry mobs of people tearing down anything they could find, removing some of our best reference points for history. It all had to go. All of it. Modern statue removal became a controversy when a necessary debate began about the statues of Robert E. Lee, the general of the Confederate Army in the American Civil War. Should Lee remain someone who should be admired by people? There is a lot of division about this, many opinions that are all valid. Robert E. Lee did champion the Confederacy and uphold an institution that advocated for the imprisonment and persecution of black people. But Lee himself also did not like slavery and thought it was morally wrong. He was offered the position of Union General by Abraham Lincoln, the one that would eventually be held by future President Ulysses S. Grant, but denied it out of loyalty to Virginia, where he married into the Washington family and was viewed by many as the heir apparent to its legacy. You don't hear this nuance talked about very much. All of it is by design. All of it can be traced to the goal of cultural Marxism, the complete undoing of everyone and everything that makes us, us. It is a censorship of any contrarian thoughts of our, or ideas, anything that can be deemed, quote, harmful. Hilariously, that, quote, harm is meant by actual harm. Acts of so-called violence are met with violence. Acts of non-existent tyranny are confronted with actual tyranny. It's like living in an Orwellian wet dream. Up is down, left is right, death is life. The summer of 2020 and some events afterwards, such as the Capitol riots and the insane things that keep happening every day, are symptoms of a common illness. A culture is, that is completely disconnected from both its past and one another in the present moment. It was a blinking red signal that showed many elements of how our culture has begun to decay, beginning with the most fundamental and basic premise that no one can seem to answer. What holds us together as a culture, exactly? The answer to that, at least right now, is nothing. That nothing, as it turns out, is the whole point. Cultural Marxism, when stripped down to the studs, is a complete toppling of all established order in favor of unfettered chaos. It is the definition of nothing itself, a black hole that sucks everything that once was into its maw for immediate destruction. Nothing is the point, because it's only when nothing exists that it can be completely remodeled and made for their desired something. The reason that the summer of 2020 will be remembered as one of, the fe one of fear and foreboding and not change in conversation 
is because the summer of 2020, looking back on it, was not about anything related to racial justice. We look back on periods of those times, like the civil rights movement, as anything but something that should be feared. There were episodes and bouts of racial injustice and violence and anarchy, but to say that the movement itself was defined by them would be revisionist history. Rather, we will remember the summer of 2020 because people were scared out of their fucking minds. White people were scared. Black people were scared. Everyone was terrified. We were going through a time of immense social upheaval, one that didn't leave a single racial group untouched. It hurts every single demographic of people. That is not justice. That is not equality. That is carnage. That is violence. That is terror. Most insane of all, all of that fear and pent-up aggression will not be for any reliable or fixable reason. Every single person that operated out of fear that summer, no matter how they think or what they look like, acted terrified out of their minds for things that should play no factor, namely their identities and how they treat people. Very few Americans care about those things enough to go out and destroy things and harm other people for them. There are very few people who actively wish black, white, or any other type of people harm on the basis of the color of their skin. We've come a long way in America. We should give ourselves a lot of credit for how much better we treat one another in, def in many different ways compared to our ancestors. But we don't. We're so busy discrediting our history, of labeling everything that got us to this point wrong in some way, shape, or form, that we do not give ourselves any grace or mercy in times when we need it the most. It's all a power game by design. Those who can claim the cultural moment, who assert, quote, their truth, claim supremacy over the do those that don't and can't. In our times, when everything is being redefined from what is right and only what you think is right, there is no greater power that one can possess. Perhaps most importantly, it removes any version of justice by replacing it with a completely antithetical placeholder, quote, social justice. The reason why social justice, contrary to what the term claims to say, means next to nothing in actuality is because actual justice should have no qualifier attached to it. Justice is just justice. It's binary. It's either doing what the word says or it is not doing what the word says. It need not be more complicated than that. But due to cultural Marxism, the definition of a very beautiful and necessary word has become perverted in the name of ideology. This movement towards replacing justice with something that is completely the opposite of justice should be a major red flag to anyone that is involved in the scenario. But it's not anymore, because anyone that disagrees with the new regime and language is automatically castigated as something immoral and reprehensible. These people, this new world order that claims to know everything about the way the world should run without knowing anything of the sort, do not want justice. They do not want blind capture of something that is morally good and right for all involved. What they want instead is something that Douglas Murray took from the ancient Nietzsche writing in the genealogy of morals, something that spanned from justice, but means something directly the opposite. Revenge. These people, either rightly or wrongly, feel like they have either been treated unjustly or, more likely, are using that group of people to, by proxy, put themselves in a position of power and falsified moral virtue. They do not want equality. They want equity, an unfair evenness of outcome that is completely cut apart from the work invested to maintain that position and the amount of effort sent out to get that work noticed. At its core, the movements that we've seen pop up in culture recently, all spawned from the inherently wicked logic of cultural Marxism, are filled with people who are incredibly spiteful and unhappy. As I said in my state address to close out 2022, the last people you should ever take advice from are those who are spiteful and unhappy. But this is exactly what we have done. 
We have inverted society completely, being told by miserable people how to not make your life miserable. It would be comedic if the results weren't so horrifying. What would help in dissuading people from taking this advice is by showing them that, rather than how they think these people are, they are actually the opposite. The people demanding a complete inversion of our culture and the way it is operated have mostly done nothing, no, have done nothing of merit that proves they can do better than what they have come before. This is what makes their claims truly radical. They try to tear down everything they see with no plans of building it back up. They claim expertise in ruling superiority without having anything to show for it. Whenever anyone calls that attempts to call them out on their own unimpressiveness and their own bullshit, the only defense they have, which sadly has worked, is their ability to call you out on the lies of your bigotry, gaslighting you with mindless drivel into thinking that somehow what you're doing is wrong, not them. What they've done instead is not show, but think that they deserve the world. They believe that, somehow, their non-existent effort in making the world more, quote, open and accepting, by doing the opposite of those words, in totality, somehow makes them qualified to remake it in their image. These people are not gods. They are simply idols, mirages of an all-powerful species that has no bearing nor grip on reality. Their ideologies cannot last, however. They all eventually consume and implode upon one another, unable to bear the weight of their own self-imposed narcissism. Therefore, that chaos and nonsense grows out into the world, making it degrade itself until we can no longer recognize what is for now from what once was. It turns the culture we live in into a full state of unfettered madness. It makes us question the most basic things that we've known and hold dear for no reason other than that to make us so deranged that we're forced to give their flaws ideological merit. This cannot happen. If it goes much further, things will continue to get that much worse. The question we must ask when facing this great wave is, how do we stop it? Part 3. Mercy over Wrath To begin the steps of taking back our decaying and rotting culture, we must first reverse the tide of the things that threaten it. Cultural Marxism. We've gone over what cultural Marxism is and what dangers it presents and provides to all of us. Now we must do the harder work, having the courage to fight against it to preserve what got us here, our traditions and values. I must reiterate that we should, however, want to get rid of what has not worked. If people are being mistreated, particularly for something such as their inherent identity, we should do our best to help them and should shift culture to make it more accommodating for them in terms of opportunity and the ability to succeed. What we cannot have is the boy crying wolf, the fake screams for something that isn't there. That doesn't help anyone, particularly the group you claim to be advocating for. The first thing that you can do is help improve your own stance of the current culture, and the first thing that you can do to defend it is by utilizing the gift of perspective that all human beings are blessed enough to have. Perspective, as we talked about numerous times, is immensely valuable for a lot of reasons. In dealing with cultural Marxism and all its destruction it causes in the world, it plays a uniquely important role. Take an inventory. Look through all your life with a fine-tooth comb and see all the bad, horrible, fucked-up shit that you've done to other people and to yourself. Look at it with unvarnished and impartial eyes. See that you are not perfect. Next, move out to the people that you like. What type of bad, horrible, and fucked-up shit have they done? It's probably a lot if you really dig into it, especially amongst your heroes. Your heroes are no different than any of the other people. They're human beings. 
The only difference is that with your heroes, you tend to look at them with more bias because you understandably view them in a more vaunted light than people who are not your heroes. After that is done, then you're allowed to move on to all the people that you don't like. You're allowed to call them horrible pieces of shit, if you dare, only after you've called yourself and all that you love horrible pieces of shit. We're commanded by God, our founding fathers, and everything that has come before us to not judge lest we be judged. And if we do decide to stray, knowing that you're not much better than the people you call bad is about the healthiest place to stray into. At the end of the day, a lot of what we've done are terrible, unforgivable things that we will never be able to live down. They haunt our nightmares. They define a good portion of how we see the world and the people that fill it. The great trick of cultural Marxism and wokeness is that it's an optical illusion. It makes you think that some sins are worse than others, that somehow you would be better off if you did certain types of bad things because they're better than other bad things. That if you treat people who, quote, deserve to be treated a certain way horribly enough, that you yourself will be saved from the wrath of their godless and zero-sum ideology. This is a lie, because they are not. One of the great comforts and reliefs about Christianity and about many faiths is that it makes explicitly clear that sin is even across the board. It is just a bad thing, not any worse nor better than ones other com others commit. It doesn't matter what they are or whom they are discommitted against. There is morality that must be discussed as well. There is such a thing as right and wrong. When you do one thing, something good can happen. When you do another, something bad happens. The complete removal of basic distinctions about morality is one of the greatest problems that cultural Marxism presents. It is only through perspective where true justice and truth can prevail. The second, and perhaps most important, element to fight back against our current culture war is gratitude. Too many people, myself included, are guilty of not having or showing gratitude when we have so much to be grateful for so much of the time. There is a dearth of our, in our culture of well-deserved thanks to those who do so much for us, which is undeniably important part of how our culture has begun to be displaced en masse since its inception. Being grateful does not involve getting down on your knees and praying for some major thing to happen to you or that has happened to you. It can be something as small as a nod to the man holding a door from you going into a store, or smiling a text from your boyfriend in the morning, or sitting in your AC during a hot day knowing that you're on the better side of the sun. These small gestures, the simple appreciation for you being alive and experiencing life, do wonders for your soul by framing it in a mindset of awe and optimism at what is happening around you. The most important thing to be grateful for is the people that came before that helped show us the way. These people, just as we discussed earlier, are not perfect. They're probably more messed up than you would care to find out about. But having grace that supersedes all their imperfect virtues and qualities is the most important element to truly appreciate our culture. Appreciating something by being grateful for it doesn't mean that you need to like it all the time, because you can never like something all the time, no matter how good it is. Rather, being grateful for it is harder and more important. It means that, in spite of all potential negatives that could come with it, in spite of all the pain it could have caused you or other people, that it is still good enough to persevere into the future. It is still worth bringing forth into the world something that is good, something that needs to be passed down through the generations. An adjacent part of gratitude that plays a large part in its importance of that is forgiveness. Being able to forgive someone or something, should they deserve to be forgiven by showing qualities that outweigh their sins, is unbelievably important for the sustainability of our world. If we cannot forgive ourselves and other people for what they've done, there is no point to the point of the cultural Marxists of bringing those people into the world that they will be created out of it. They will only taint it, ruin it, by destroying their utopian version of what they wish to happen. 
People are more than their mistakes and much more than their sins. They're people, human beings, just like you and I. We must forgive them and be grateful for what they've done for our culture, either in a good or a bad way. Every human being has value. Everyone can teach us something. There is too much hatred in the world for hating people unnecessarily for things that they wish they'd never have done. We, as those who don't want to preserve our culture, must do our part to lead by showing that we can give people a quality that our world needs a lot more of. Mercy. If we don't do this, if we continue down the dark and twisted path that we're currently trekking down, we risk the possibility of throwing our entire culture away. Darker and more twisted still, we risk throwing it all away for something much worse than what is already constituted. It is only through mercy, through forgiveness and its close friend, gratitude, that we can emerge from this fiasco with our culture intact. Finally, an opening article of year four of a don'treadthisblog.com article wouldn't be complete without some discussion of remembering and honoring your core values. Our values, the things that define us as individuals, are sometimes all the weapons that we have and need to defeat something like cultural Marxism that seeks to discredit them. If we allow people to tamper with them, we allow people to tamper with our very sense of humanism. We allow them to taint our individuality, to corrupt it by swaying us towards mindless groupthink. But values cannot be formed without action. Actions must be taken to form your values or else they would not be values. Values are valuable for you to you for the sacrifice that comes with them. You cannot have something of value or lie to yourself about what is valuable when you do nothing with them that makes your mark on the world. Someone that does nothing while saying everything is not a person to be trusted, what with while saying every or, or, oh god, I fucked that up. Someone that does nothing while saying everything is not a person to be distrusted or trusted when it comes to a discussion of values. The most important action you can take to defend your personal values and the most important action we can collectively take to defend our cultural values is this. Sticking up for them. Stand up for yourself. Stick up for what you believe in. Stick up for your heroes. Do not let anyone discredit them if you or they did not do anything wrong. These people most likely do not know either you nor them. Certainly not enough to say something about them that defames their character and discredits their integrity as human beings. The reason cultural Marxism has been able to take such a strong grip on our culture is because we've abandoned our spines and our values in favor of conforming to the values of those who want to destroy us. For that to stop, we must rediscover the fortitude that comes with creating a defined and virtuous value system. If you can prove your point as to why your values and your culture are superior, it is your obligation to do so. You have no reason and no right to stand by why something is, that is insufficiently able to do a job does a job. It is in the very nature of the human spirit and soul to thrive, strive, and dream. When we do not do that, we forsake our very identity as human beings. The good news is that most of the people that propagate these theories aren't very intelligent when you really begin to question them about it. They know nothing about the nuts and bolts of how anything works. And this gives you the best ammunition possible to defend yourself against the onslaught of attacks that you will inevitably get from having values that differ from theirs. When you begin to take a purposeful motion of coming to the defense of those values, cultural Marxism will begin to do what all Marxism eventually does. Fade away into nothing due to a lack of credible and meritable achievement and competence. This requires an absolutely essential ingredient, which also serves as the poison needed to kill off cultural Marxism. The truth. Above all, as we take the step in taking back our culture, we must defend the truth. The truth, the objective truth is the one thing that will get us back on track to receive the blessings of our culture that are waiting to be bestowed upon us. To get our culture back, we need to do all of the above using the truth as our biggest weapon. Further still, to get our culture back, 
We need to do the one thing that we failed to do and that cultural Marxism discourages since it began taking place. Appreciate it. Cultural Marxism, the war of psychological, the psychological and spiritual warfare being waged in our tradition and values, is fought by inverting the truth to attack and divide our un otherwise united population. It is a complete dissolution of everything we once perceived as real, righteous, just, and good. To effectively fight back against it within our nation, we must show that it is exactly the opposite of what they claim, real, righteous, just, and good. It is a fight that must take all of us singing in a chorus of truth, no matter whether we agree or disagree or look the same or different. Because if our culture does not survive, neither will we. Next week, we'll take the issue out of America into the world, where another force is trying to claim our culture from the outside. But until then, appreciate and love the people you live with. They are good people. And if you can, punch a lot of Nazis. Only actual Nazis, though. Okay. That was fun. Needed to get that one off my chest. So that is the first post of the Culture Death series. I am I'm excited about it. I was excited about that. I thought that turned out pretty well. I hope you guys thought so too. Rate, like, subscribe, whatever you do on your podcast. I've been doing this for now three years. I believe this year three of the podcast. But yeah, guys, that's kind of just what this is what that series is going to be about. It, it's kind of about just kind of reclaiming what our culture means to us as Americans, as people, as good people, as decent people, and kind of doing what we can to shed lights on the things that can harm that culture and us as a result of all of those things. So next week is also going to be very exciting. The week after that's going to be very exciting. I think the whole series is going to be exciting, but I think all of it's going to kind of spill into one another and it's going to kind of really focus in on what we can do to stop the madness that's enshrining all this other kind of stuff here, keep all of us sane and hopefully allow us to be good, better people at the end of the day. So thanks for listening, guys. I really appreciate it. Happy 2023. Hope you guys had a great New Year's, great Christmas, happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah, whatever the fuck you celebrate this time of the year. And on the day, open your mind. Catch you guys next week. Thanks so much for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? <laughs>